Hi, welcome to Nice Talk, the crypto show by NiceHash, where we feature expert commentary from around the crypto industry. Today, I'm very happy to welcome uh, Bitsby Dripping, Carter, joining us today. Uh, I was going to talk about all things mining. So we're going to dive deep into all the many aspects of mining with a really experienced uh, miner guy today. So welcome. Welcome to the show. Uh, can you start off by just telling us a little bit uh, about yourself uh, and what you do? Yeah, so uh, I usually go by BBT Carter. Um, just it's been a thing since back in the day. Uh, I got into crypto pretty early. Uh, started mining in 2010, uh, so that's pretty early, late late 2010. Found that from folding at home. I used to do a lot of uh, like folding at home and SETI at home. Just essentially taking my extra compute power and doing uh, things with it, and uh, found. Bitcoin very early on one of those forums where somebody said, hey, you can put some computational power to this thing. You'll win these tokens, but, you know, it's this this new network. Um, did that from just like a kind of a side thing just to see how that would work. And it was, you know, not about uh, at the time. It wasn't, you know, like, oh, this thing could be worth a lot. It was more of just like computational power thing. Then started exploring it a little further um, and doing, you know, like most people back in that day, uh, putting things in like milk cartons and trying to, you know, uh, overclock the old, you know, 5770s and 6950s and all those old AMD cards back then. And then slowly turn that into where it became more than a hobby. Uh, and then by that time I was like, you know what, there's not a YouTube channel on this, like explaining this stuff. It was just all forums, right? Bitcoin talk. Uh, forum and a couple other little side forums that people would talk on and felt like it needed a, you know, a place on the internet when it came to like visual, like there wasn't really a lot of faces behind like setup and all that. And so I made Bitsby tripping back in 2013 and it was with kind of an entertainment flair with it a little bit, you know, try to get people excited into the space, wanted to see what was out there. And I'm like a hardware nerd anyways. I like checking to see what something's capable, pushing it to the limits, that kind of thing. And yeah, it just, uh, it was kind of a rabbit hole that then pulled in, uh, you know, to really put a heavy focus on it and, you know, uh, build a lot of content. I mean, almost 800 videos in total. If you count the, the Twitch stream since then, about 2,500 hours plus of content um, on the internet. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of stuff, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of people in it and, uh, it's it's a, one of the best communities out there, bar none. And I mean, I I like do com, I used to do competitive racing, like with SCCA. I used to do a lot of different things on uh, you know hobby. I was a very hobbyist type of person. I do a lot of sports and stuff. Compared to all those different communities, crypto is a very unique community. Uh, so it just you know everybody likes to share their stuff. You know, like share yeah. the the config and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I just it really just kept the energy uh to keep building more content and expanding it so uh i'm not sure if you uh so the question here is are you living of the mining of course i i, I think you are i'm guessing i hope that's not a weird question for you but uh, yeah no it's, it's uh, not when, at all yeah, yeah. When, when did you uh like start living off of it how long did it took for you to to get to the point um, where the real the real switch over i could have in 2016 if i wanted to sell a lot of coin um uh, but really after 2017 is where uh you know i could have got away from like a day job type of thing 
um, as we really started scaling up our own operations to like, a, I would say a good size, medium size farm. It started with about 800 cards and went all the way up to about 27. Now we're at about 2,700 total GPUs. Um, and then we've added a six since then. So it's, um, I mean, that was good enough. And then like the, the one thing people are like, Oh, if you're YouTube and you're making all, you don't make anything <laughs> like you make very minimal on YouTube. Um, from like a Google AdSense standpoint, uh, you really need to take like sponsors and that kind of thing. And I had not taken any sponsors until this last year. So I've had a YouTube channel from 2013 through now current. And I, I turned down all the sponsor stuff. I, I was just like, you know what? I'm just observe and report. And I would work with folks like that. We're wanting to get their, you know, their, you know, services or their, you know, hardware known, like I would buy the unit and say, Hey, you know, it's like, this is the best deal for you. Cause I'm just going to test it anyways. And you're, you're just going to get the honest feedback on it. And it, that really worked out to really kind of expand the brand and make sure people understood just the way I was approaching it. Right. I was, I still was doing a day job and crypto was still doing okay. So I kind of hedged both. And even today I still do consulting work with my prior job, um, you know, my prior full-time job. Uh, and you know, that's, uh, it, it still keeps me enough energy. I mean, this, this is a busy space, but you can kind of get like, once everything's kind of running, you're like, okay, yeah. now what? Right. So, <laughs> exactly. Um, so you, know, you can keep yourself busy. So what was it like, like you mentioned you started out in you. 2010. Okay. What was it like back, like the mining scene at that time? Yeah, so that there wasn't really. So, like, I found it just by chance on a uh, folding at home forum. So people would talk about configs and like different. You know, can you do multi GPU? At that time, it was essentially two GPUs. Was it right? It was like you could do crossfire with with um, AMDs. Nvidia was exploring SLI when it came to like the the 6600 uh, series or the 6800 ultra series and that. So that was like the, the tech stack then. And it was really like, can you put two GPUs together and, and do stuff? And somebody had shown, uh, you know, this uh, distro that you could download and you could mine locally and how to get that set up. And I was like, well, I'll try something different. It's computational. Why not? Let's see what, what yield or what hash rate I could get. Uh, and that's really what it was. It was just a back and forth on the hardware side. It wasn't so much about the token at the time. So in 2010, it was more of like, what could you do with this network? What's the point of it? Um, that's cool. I can send these tokens back and forth to each other. Um, and that was it. I mean, it was, it was not uh, really any focus on money. I would say until early 2011, when there started being like OTC trade desk on it. And then you had Mount, the Mount Gox, uh, you know, putting an exchange up and then you had BTCE come online. You had like all of these, like this expansion from this concept that there was money involved with it. I mean, there was people talking about price discovery and stuff, but I wasn't really tracking that. I was still on that kind of like, I just want to get a lot of tokens. I want to see if I can get, you know, how many blocks can I win type of thing. So it was more that kind of focus than it was about the money at the time. And I think around that 2011 timeframe, it started going, oh, wait a minute here. Like, if this is getting that kind of price discovery, maybe someday it might be worth something more than a couple dollars. Um, and, you know, just trying to figure out, like, there was no rational discussion 
on if it was like from a mining standpoint is like covering power. Like it wasn't even a thought then. It was like, mm -hmm. I'm using power. And mind you, most of the farms then were just like four to six GPUs. Maybe you had some crazy person that went with like 12, but like they were two card machines sitting in a, in a, you know, a box. And then in early 2011, you started seeing some pictures on the forums of people putting them in like getting them out of the box, trying not to do the three-way SLI type of thing because it was baking the cards. And that's when like the first ribbon risers started coming out and that kind of thing. So that was kind of the evolution of it. And none of us knew anything about, uh, you know, riser draw power. Everything was direct connect. You were burning up boards. I mean, that kind of thing. So it was very vanilla, um, but it was still super hardware side until I would say that end of 2011, end of 2012 before the first halving. And you had that run up from like $2 and some change. And it was like November, my birthday's on November 15th. So November 14th, I remember doing my first OTC trade on uh, for Bitcoin uh, of 2011. And Bitcoin at the time was $2.67. So it was like, that was the first concept. Like, hey, this stuff used to be worth nothing to pennies. People would just hand it to each other to wow, this is actually worth real money. If you're trying to buy thousands of Bitcoin, you're going to spend a couple thousand dollars, you know? Um, and that run up right there at that November of 11 to December of 11 into the beginning of 12, it went from $2.67 to like uh, almost $200. And that's when it got on the news and people were like, what's this thing? Um, and that's when you know, like realize like, wow, this is actually an instrument, a financial instrument. And and then you started seeing, you know, uh, a lot of uh, other content creators at that February timeframe. A lot of the most earliest people, Stefan, um, I can't think of his last name on YouTube that does a lot of, uh, does the, like the freedom podcast and like the cypherpunk kind of, uh, side of it started really making content around Bitcoin, uh, you know, around the messaging around what Bitcoin's ethos and stuff was. And then it started to be bigger than just you know, us miners just trying to uphold the network, right? And that's when it really started getting some. I, I remember uh, I started mining in 2012, or at least I heard for Bitcoin back then. And I think Bitcoin was around $20, something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, and me and my brother wanted to buy Bitfury ASICs. Do you remember the first yeah. ASICs that came? Uh, yeah. that were available. I think that they were Bitfury or Butterfly, Butterfly, but, but, Labs. Butterfly Labs. So yeah, Avalon, yeah, Avalon A1s, I think, were a little after, but Butterfly Labs came out and was putting out uh, the Jalapeno, which was the first kind of, you know. Did you uh, maybe get the chance to order one at the time? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I ordered two Jalapenos. I got one of them. Um, and I actually, uh, every, every Thursday, I try to throw up like a throwback Thursday type of thing. And okay. I, I posted a picture of the first like week I had it um, and its output, how much Bitcoin it was earning. It was earning at pretty, essentially every four hours, 0 0.2 Bitcoin every four hours, right? <laughs> so, and that was for eight giga hash. Um, and it wasn't like you do the math on it. I think I paid $800 for it at the time. Um, and it was like, oh, the ROI is gonna be like nine months. I'm like, I guess that's okay. You know, like it was like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hindsight now it's like so that's like two and a half Bitcoin yeah. a month. Yeah. And, uh, were you aware at the time for like ASICs and decentralization and all the stuff that that like uh, most of the miners hate about ASICs right now? 
Uh-huh. Yeah. How were your feelings about that at the time? Uh, I mean, I think it's an inevitability um, predicated on price discovery versus yield. So it's like if something's highly profitable, you're going to have a huge motivation of a whole bunch of people that are going to try to figure out the most efficient way to do that. Um, and then you have like the ethos of trying to make sure that the big machine or a couple entities can't do that. So they'll pivot the algorithm kind of like Monero is done and Ravencoin's done. Um, I think it comes back down to that ethos of like, what are you trying to do? And um, is there a fair market participation? I think as, as all of this stuff starts to get much larger, you know, Bitcoin rises through its next halving. And if we're talking $200,000, $300,000 Bitcoin price and the sea rises all boats type of thing, it's going to drive an, you know, Intel, AMD, everybody yep. will start to try to build like more specified solutions. Um, but you know, I, I, I've always put it back to, I'm not against the ASICs as more as I'm against the, the concept that one company now controls everything, controls everything and that they, they don't, it's not, there's not a huge retail market on that where it's not at a store. I mean, part of the allure and I always have told everybody is that if you get lost on the internet one night, you find one of our videos or somebody else's video and you're like, you discover this whole thing about like being a participant. And the fact that you can become a participant in that sitting without asking for permission, and now you're contributing to that network and you're circumstantially compensated in a token, and you wake up that next morning and you actually have a payout and you're like, okay, this is interesting. I can become a participant. That's huge. And if you take that away where you've separated that to where now somebody has to like go outside to try to find this company, maybe pay the wrong price, or you have to wait, or there's delays, all this other stuff to then participate. I think you've disjoined the point of that decentralization concept. Yep. And people but are like, well, you guys have a bigger farm and you guys are, yeah, you yep. lose the social, the you social lose that engagement. But yeah. I think, and I, I think, sorry, I think there will be like an issue with supply as we see right now with GPUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there simply isn't enough supply. If there yeah. would be enough supply, the difficulty would jump up. The mining would, wouldn't be so profitable. Maybe it would go like to the, the minimum. Uh, we, would, we would have mi- minimum profits. So correct. Correct. the bear market style. Right? Yeah, Where but uh, but use. yes, but if the hardware isn't uh, optimized, mm-hmm. and uh, so you have like a price rising and you also need to have a, a difficulty rising at the same speed. And if you, if the difficulty is not rising so fast, uh, it stays behind and then you have more and more hardware, which draw more and more power, uh, mm-hmm. which is causing issues, right? We are seeing, uh, like we are seeing right now with Russia and, uh, yeah. I think Kosovo. Uh, yeah, like- they're making, they're, they're seeing the strain on it because the, the incentive is there to more hardware production. Exactly. Uh, and, and then you have more power consumption and it's just like a rabbit hole. You go uh, more power, more hash rate until you reach that point of, uh, of like how the do you call equilibrium. It? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah. I think that if there would be, there will be, will be new devices. They really have to be efficient yeah. to match up the, the price. Uh, yeah. To match up the price yeah. for the, difficulty. I mean, I think, I think the incentives are structured in a way that, the producers are literally like, like you can see the tech stack as it was went since back in like 2011, where you had kind of super inefficiency. They were at the back of the bus when it came to like the fabrication on the silicone side. So like 
they were at 14 nanometer, you know, 20 nanometer. And now Bitcoin mining in most ASIC architectures at the front of the stack, right, where they're leading the investment piece, you know, from we see Intel's coming out with a new chip with very low wattage. They're at the tip of the spear. So they're now at that trying to push for five nanometer architecture and fabrication. So and then the incentive is there for them to try to drive that tooling faster than even the, like the commercial market, uh, because the the output of like the commercial stuff, like at the seven nanometer level, like for like AMD and Intel. And I mean, I think even in our, uh, NVIDIA, like when we talk, go switch back to GPUs, like NVIDIA, most of our architecture is like eight nanometer. They're not even at the seven nanometer. Some of the stuff is going to be seven nanometer, but like they have no real hard requirement to like drive that even faster from a power savings or than that. Cause their capability of output is, you know, frames per second on a video game using features and stuff. So like, it doesn't have the same motive to drive the wattage down and all that. Cause it's so tied to like ops costs. So, you know, I, I think it's a natural uh, progression that, that it's going to try to drive down, you know, the architecture. It's just really on the GPU side and the people that can buy things at, you know, local stores. I mean, I'm actually surprised if I was making a prediction in 2016, I would have said if Bitcoin would hit these different levels and some of these other coins, you know, Ethereum hitting 4,800, who would have thought it? The, we would have seen a much more proliferation into the retail space with like having very custom setups or, you know, even like Bitcoin miners in like the USB miners and Shout out to the few folks that have won a few blocks on a few. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but having those like at micro centers and like Best Buys and all these different retail locations, like having those just on the shelves too, right? Like, like there's an entire market of people that'd be like, "Oh, I'm going to buy this graphics card. Oh, I can buy a USB miner for ninety bucks, right? I'll I'll just do that too, right?" And having seeing a retail push, you know, because it comes back to that that whole story where you can become a participant. I, I'm always, I've always looked at it like participation first, then start to understand the dynamics. And then, yeah, you can start to chart out, like, are you trying to make this passive income or anything else, right? Participation always first. That way you get to understand the market because there's going to be some people that think they want to be miners and then they try it. And I always tell people on the channel, I'm like, start with one GPU. Don't go buy a big setup. Like, understand what you're getting into. Uh, don't get buyers remorse type of stuff. So start small, understand the network, understand how to move coins around that secure your wallet, all that, then scale up if you're comfortable with it and want to put the time into it. Um, and I think that's where that retail push allows people to kind of get one, two things at a time and then scale up. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, with the ESG talks right now, and you were looking at the different countries dealing with like the immediate uh, growth on power and it all comes back down you know hash rate always it's a it's a rolling wave so price goes up hash rate follows like a wave behind it yeah. and it, it kind of tells off and the price sets down you know that 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 wave is still a little higher and then it'll it'll recede if you know profitabilities hit a certain you know i would say global average kilowatt per hour cost which uh like 12 8, 12 to 14 cents you, you, if you hit equilibrium at 12 to 14 cents on like an S19, you're going to figure out like if they're at that, which I think right now is like $25,000 Bitcoin price, 22,000, somewhere around there at 14 cents per kilowatt is where those folks will be even. And then on the GPU side and the Ethereum side, it's like 1.7 terahash. It's like almost double where it's at right now at like $3,000. So it's like, 
we're seeing it at almost 900 oh, oh, it hit one petahash uh, the ethereum network did but it's still highly profitable um and you know comparable to a lot of other times and exactly i think people are like uh, screaming all around that uh, it's not profitable to mine anymore but in reality it's still very yes. profitable yeah yeah and it, i mean it's you know if ethereum and then we get back into this little baby bear uh market that we're in right now and it looks like there's a lot of you know struggle i don't know if we hold these levels i mean i see people talking like twenty thousand stuff it's a different time like there's a lot more yeah. the liquidity stack is a lot different the opportunity stacks a lot different uh the engagement levels completely different right where you have people that now have accounts you know the first step order step is get an account and then tie some other kind of revenue piece to it and then are you know some kind of funding source and then you look at in 2017 run up and then pull back infrastructure was built during that time so now there's all these different locations i mean paypal uh, Robinhood, webull all these like quick apps that people can be like oh it looks down i'm gonna buy some right i was out and you know you're looking at retail to you know chew it up right now yeah exactly like 36,000. but yeah uh another thing worth mentioning is that the price i think the price won't be so volatile uh, as it is, as it was before, because people know if it goes down, it's time to buy. Uh, so mm -hmm. there will be less and less up and downs like it's this one. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all going to come back down to scarcity too, right? So there is yeah. only so many and there's a lot of holders. I mean, that, that it's becoming a subculture of, of <laughs> yeah. total, right? So it's like, and then as more other instruments, this is the stuff that a lot of people don't track is. The other instruments to where you can get to a point where you don't need to sell your crypto, you can borrow against it. As that starts to really get more refined, now you're creating taxable events. You know, at least in the U.S., you're not creating taxable events because you're just you're locking it up in BlockFi and you're borrowing against your crypto. It's a debt position, right? And you're only borrowing 35% equivalent, so it has to drop 65% for you to get liquidated. So it's a lot safer position if you needed to get access to liquidity. As more of those instruments and those, uh, you know, opportunities arise to allow people to leverage their crypto and and not sell it, now you got this locked up rate because now people are borrowing against their crypto. That's locked up, right? So now they're not moving it; they're they already got a position against it. Um, yeah, and I think more and more scarcities. Yeah, I think uh, a good uh, thing. I mean, when friends ask me about Bitcoin price and so on, I mm. always tell them that. Uh, that there's 21 million of bitcoins and there's like 40 something millions of mi millionaires. So if yeah. only one millionaire would get a half of it, uh, they would run yeah. out of bitcoins. Yeah, it, it's uh, and as more this is where the regulatory front, at least and I talk a lot more specific to like US, but like the regulatory fronts is they're trying to figure out um, enforcement uh, and you know, the lawmaking side, all this other stuff, like how do the entities like banks and stuff interact with it? Like in the US, I mean, there's a lot of FUD that comes around, but what they're doing is trying to figure out how does it fit in the stack. And yeah. right there for me tells me, well, they're That's not a trying good thing. to baby out with a bathwater. They're just literally trying like, how do I tax it? How do I keep, uh, you know, malicious activity, you know, at least gated? Um, and they're looking at how that will interact. So there's a lot of different participants, you know, building businesses in areas that are a little more regulatory friendly. You know, you got Texas, Washington, Wyoming, you know, these states and then the US structures are the feds will come out with rules. The states will go, 
I kind of agree with that, but we're going to do something to lock you up in court for two years while we all debate this and we're going to let, you know, let it happen. So that's the interesting thing about the, the structure of something like the United States that has like their enforcement and their lawmaking in different departments and they, they can just fight with each other. And then the states is a whole other layer. And like I used to work for a company, Anheuser-Busch. It was a beer company. You probably know them, Budweiser, uh, uh, Stella Artois because it was, became Ambev. Um, and I used to do a lot of pricing work with them. So pricing and margin, that's where kind of like the nerdy, like statistical side from Bitcoin and stuff comes from on me is uh, looking at all the rulemaking, like all the way down in the States, it all goes all the way down to the county level, right? So like it could get that uh, and counties are just a lot smaller parts of States in the, in the country and they can have completely different rules. Um, you know, like in the beer side, and I can see it fragmenting like this is why I'm mentioning it is, in like on the beer side, you could have 5% and then a county right next to it that only does 3% alcohol. Then you have one that's dry, right? And then the wholesaler could be to the right of it. And the wholesaler doesn't even allow to put like the writing on the, the truck. They have to go with a blank truck because they got to drive through a dry county and they don't want to see Budweiser driving through, the, you know, deliver. So like there's all these like micro rules that end up fragmenting uh, across the states to allow things to occur. Bottom line is, is that there's certain areas that are always going to allow it and push for it. And I think we're seeing that established in Texas. We're seeing that established in Washington and Wyoming, uh, where they're putting a stake in the ground and saying, we want to service uh, the participants that want to be part of this network, you know, from, you know, retail getting in to mining infrastructure, power infrastructure, all the things that are that are enabling uh, people to get into this. Um, and then all the financial instruments, the people that are like, all that stuff sounds cool. I want to invest in it. I don't want to know anything else. I just want my money to work for me in that sector. Right. And we're seeing that, uh, you know, all get structured out. So if people are like, I oh, mean, are you not bullish on Bitcoin? I'm like, dude, like, yes, like in every way. And I mean, I know like our vision that if you're in this space is very myopic to it, but like I'm looking, I'm stepping back and looking at it, like, what are the things that could break the momentum from regulatory, from enforcement, from, you know, countries that are trying to figure it out themselves and, and banning because they have a little more overreach on making decisions, like shutting off the internet they did in Kazakhstan, you know, like, like it gets, it gets complicated very quickly. It gets complicated, but they're going to figure it out. I think that and there's enough momentum for people to educate. So some of those actions are, knee jerk because they have the power to do it, but then they're going to feel the pressure of it. Like not just on a country stage, you're feeling it on a world stage, right? Like a lot of folks in, in like the U S here, Kazakhstan, and they don't even know where it's at on a map, but they do now. Right. Cause it's being, it's on the news They're they're getting a lot more focus. I mean, look at what happened with El Salvador, you know, blessing it is currency, right? Like the, they are on the world stage in a huge way that they would have never been on, right? So I think that the people see that exposure and they see that pressure and then they, they it makes them second guess of like, should we be shutting down the internet for this? This is probably a bad idea. And then it goes, it goes back on. And now it's more of like, how do we maintain growth uh, of power systems and all this other, and build a plan? Because I mean, people will react and then they're gonna go back into a boardroom and go, like, we need more power here if we want to participate. How do we do that? And then you'll see those things manifest. That death stuff takes time. 18 months, two years down the line, we're coming into another halving. And now you're, we're enabled again, like we were from the 2017 to now with the liquidity centers being able to take millions of people and not go offline. We're going to see that on the infrastructure side, I think, in the next two years. 
very bullish on the mining side, proof of work, because, um, you know, participation again. Yeah. Sorry, I was ranting. Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, bring, bring it back to, to mining. Um, yeah. yeah, it's very interesting uh, that you're saying, like, um, on a side note for this, it's kind of a, a good pointer for our users for one of the reasons why NASA has certain elements of the business not available in the US because it gets extremely complicated very quickly yes. when it comes to the regulation side of things. But, but yeah, let's bring it back a bit to, to mining. So in terms of you, your mining, like your daily mining, do you have some particular favorites that you like to play with? Like some, are you, you mentioned a bit about ASICs versus GPUs. Are you more GPU kind of guy or you play with a bit of both? Yeah, for sure, more GPU. Uh, like uh, we're, we are getting into some of the ASICs just because, I mean, and people have asked me, they're like, dude, you never talk about ASICs. You used to back in 2011 or 20. Uh, 14, 2015, I'd actually reviewed a lot of the ASICs that were coming up at that time, Spondulitech, Tech, uh, uh, a couple of the uh, grid seed stuff like back in the day. And then I kind of went off of ASICs and went full GPU. And I just, I've always liked the GPU side more. There's a lot more diversity and there's a lot more ability to participate for anybody. Um, so that, that's why I put a lot of focus on that. I, I want more and more people to understand it. And I've seen the effect of folks that have tried it and they're like, you know what, not for me, but now they become a counterparty and they're buying the coin, right? So they're like, you know what, I'll just take a position in it. Well, that has a good effect for mining side that if, you know, as more and more folks buy up scarcity, especially on the the fixed, you know, uh, limit coins like Bitcoin, uh, Ravencoin, Litecoin, those different coins are proof of work that have upper limits, right? it puts the counterparty we're effectively enabling the understanding of the counterparty to the purchase coins too so the ability to participate i think is very big gpus give you that best option uh it could be an argument that that cpu mining could do that um i'm a little less enthused on cpu mining because just the the incentives unfortunately is it gets it to where you can get it into more botnet kind of stuff um, because there are CPUs everywhere and there's uh, there's the structure and the simplicity of doing it on a CPU is a lot lot more simpler because you can thread it in certain ways that that make it a less like you don't need to load it up 100% you can set it at 30% and just kind of trickle and create you know uh, an incentive for people to build things for CPUs GPU is a lot different like you can do the same kind of thing but it's a lot more complicated because the GPUs have a whole bunch of different tech stacks. Um, and they're not all created equal, right? I mean, it could be the same GPU and one runs one setting, one run doesn't run with setting. So I like that, that complexity that's involved with that. So a lot more on the, the GPU, um, yeah. side than anything else. I like the, pro- I like the problems in a weird way. I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm so, broken uh, like that. <laughs> so if you, uh, are you more of AMD or NVIDIA guy or do you, do you care I- at all? I've always liked AMD more, and I know that's even more of a pain. NVIDIA's, <laughs> NVIDIA's drivers and their their card um, traditionally is better. Um, it's better output. It's usually less efficiency, short of the RDNA 2 stuff that NVIDIA or AMD's came out with, I think uh, actually is better. Um, arguably between the 2060 Ti and the 6600 XT, I mean, they're you know around the same power profile, but the... Um, you know, I, I've liked AMD. AMD was a lot more responsive early, like yeah. uh, Roy Taylor and some of the AMD folks. Um, you know, they have a they created a blockchain division back in 2014, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and they've been very uh, responsive uh, 
Rashawit, is it Rashawit? It's uh, George. Yeah, George. Yeah, George. Yeah, George's been awesome. Yeah. And, and I mean, like back in the day, with like when there was the issue with like the compute, you know, like I was going back and forth with George. I mean, I know he was going back and forth with Claymore. We were trying to figure out, you know, uh, issues related to the compute issue. I mean, just the engagement on the AMD side was always a lot better um, yeah. than Nvidia. I mean, I literally at CES in 2018 shot up to the front after uh you know the nvidia ceo uh got off the stage and i got an inter- i don't know how i did it i got an interview with him ahead of every all the other world media and i try to hit him up on like hey man like cryptocurrency you can't find a gpu on this planet mind you that was january of 18 which was the run-up of ethereum in 17 you know december of 17 so there wasn't like a gpu to be found and i was just like you guys don't talk about anything about crypto like i have huge discuss like good discussions with amd like they're open like they're not telling me anything that's like proprietary they're just they're engaged i'm like and i know you guys have an engagement team so like like are you guys working with any other it was a lot more cryptic right so uh, that's the part that i would push against nvidia is they're just their unwillingness to engage with the community um yeah we might that you uh actually have jork on one of the next shows we're not sure yet uh so, yeah, yeah he's, um, he's great. I hope he, yeah, he's he gets great. on there. Uh, yeah. And another thing is, I think you probably like AMD more because there's more problem with it. You have more <laughs> tuning. <laughs> with NVIDIA, you set it up, do a couple of tweaks, and yeah. off you go. But with AMD, there's memory timings. There's so much thing to do. Yeah, there's keep you busy. A more. There's a little more, especially if, uh, especially if you're like mixing rigs up with different types of, you know, uh, cards and yeah. yeah the consistency difference the fabrication difference the even partners. the memory memory manufacturer that can make yeah, the, yeah. The, the partners to like yeah, so yeah so what would be the most common issue you have with gburix uh the number probably the number one issue um well it depends because the 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 series were really had their own little specific issues um i would say on the newest stuff um they're actually really consistent um besides probably like the 6800 and 6900s sometimes can be a little flaky um but like the 6600 is just rock solid it works really good so rdna2 stuff pretty decent not a huge amount of problems um step back into like the 5700 i still think it's one of the best ones that they ever produced um uh next to probably vegas 64 but like uh they are a little more finicky. If you put BIOSes on them, they're a little more not unstable, um, you know, on that series. So that whole 5,000 series in general, uh, but still had a, a decent set of output. Um, my favorite, uh, my, my favorite was the Radeon 7. If it would have just functioned correctly all the time, like it burned up. Like, I think they went a little, they overshot it. And I think they were trying to really go for the compute side on the HBM2 stuff. I mean, a hundred, I mean, that thing, two and a half years, what, three years ago now? Over three years ago was doing a hundred mega hash. Yeah. Which, I mean, is insane. It, yeah. like, like they built it to just take over the, you know, but they're just, you don't have a long longevity. We had a total, I think of, uh, we had 21, we had three seven card rigs of those. Um, and we have six left to give you an idea. So um, there was a high fell rate on them. So you never mentioned any issues about the razors. Are you using razors or do you have GPUs plugged directly in the board? Uh, risers, I mean, so we didn't, I mean, so we had the version seven, um, like essentially version sevens of the risers uh, on our farm in 2016. And we had, 
I mean, 2,500 GPUs, we probably went through maybe a hundred risers over the whole entire time. So like we had bought double. So we were figuring we're going to have a pretty high fell rate. Let's, you know, let's buy 2,500 and let's buy another 2,500. So we bought 5,000 risers <laughs> and we used about a hundred on a replacement. So I have boxes of version seven risers, um, that we just didn't use. So I don't know if they were just the best, they were just the most consistent. Um, a huge thing about risers that we've learned is understanding the amount of power that's being provided through them. And it really is dependent on the cards that you have. So like, I think a lot of that contribution was because we had RX 470 and 480 Sapphire mining editions. And like one of the things I cover on the channel is I do this test. We have a tool that was custom built that allows us to look at the riser power pool. Those cards, when configured down, and you're at like 790 millivolts on the out- output, uh, 2,000 memory, and I think like 1,100 on the core, they pull 27 watts off the riser. So it's it's a very low amount um, as compared to like a fully optimized 5,700 to pull 55 watts off the riser. Um, so it's almost double. And what I think what happens is, is that they just, when you're pulling that kind of power through them, even if you're six pinned into them uh, versus like a SATA connector, um, you they just, uh, they fell, you know, yeah, and you know, like the newer ones, especially like running like a 3090, a 3090, I showed on the video. Uh, we actually had one pull 108 Watts through the riser with your full tilt, have everything turned up, nothing turned down, uh, on like Ravencoin. It was pulling 108 Watts off the riser, which is insane. Like I'm surprised the riser didn't catch fire, but, um, you know, when you're tilted all the way down and optimized on like a 3090, you're still pulling 70 Watts on that. So it, I think it, it comes down to just the, the design of them. And that's why, you know, a lot of people ask like, hey, why don't you have like Octominer cases or stuff that's built in single boards? I had one when they first came out and within like, I don't know, three or four weeks, like we had a 5,700 rig on it. I lost two of the two of the onboard risers. And it's like, well, now I can't replace those that are built into the board. So it, that's why I don't go with it. Cause if I lose, if I lose a riser on that board, um, then I have that slot on. So. Yeah, I think it's just it's management of it. We're we're trying to expand uh, the channel content. You know, you know, we've hired eight people, um, and I have two people that have really trained up that they could do all the troubleshooting. I have absolute confidence in them, and we're trying to record kind of a series of going back through. We have um, a little over a hundred different GPUs here. I've, I've kept a lot of them all the way back to like the sixty nine fifties at least one of them, each of the types. So we're going to go back through with a series and do that riser power test with a couple different algorithms just to show everybody essentially a matrix of like, here's what you're going to pull. So um, here's your configs and the impact on it, you know, especially as we get to Ethereum 2.0, if and when they actually switch it over um, and people look at things like Ravencoin and things that are like ProgPal coins that are going to pull a more juice, you know, how to optimize it to where you're not going for the top hash rate. You kind of back it down to save your hardware type of thing. So what would be like three tips you could give to people starting out mining in 2022? Uh, I would say start small. Like try, if you're brand new, one card, if you don't have a computer already that can mine, you know, and there's different ways to mine. I mean, we're talking on... uh, you know, nice talk here today. So, uh, you know, doing nice hash and doing a broker service to just let it optimize, let it configure your stuff, get a good test to 
to understand, you know, the load and, and understanding how like, you know, you get payouts and how you get your wallet set up. So start small um, and then under start to understand that and then start to scale up to something that makes sense for within your budget and, uh, you know, understand the longer term that, that, that mining in general is about just yield. You're, you're, you're earning yield and while you can book it to current price, it's always been a forecast for future. So there is a, a strategy to it. It isn't like you mine and you immediately sell. I've never recommended that. And I mean, we have to always do the not financial advice. I will tell you what I do. Um, we never sell everything all the way, right? It doesn't make any sense. Even if we're at close to equilibrium profitability, where we, where we hit like in uh, March of 2020, where we had $86 Ethereum price, the network was about 153 terahash. You do the math on like nine cents per kilowatt, you're right about there, um, which we look at our all in costs. We're about six and a half cents at our big farm, um, but there's still delivery and we have people there. So I, I take all the costs and blend them up to see what my relative rate is to operate uh, and then turn that into an equation to figure out what my real uh, operating uh, per cents per kilowatt is, which is a common way to do things. So most people kind of just look at their kilowatt hour, but you're investing time. And if you have other people helping you, you're investing that. Take all those costs, roll it into what your hash rate and your output is, and then get that as your kilowatt hour. Because at the end of the day, it's a bottom line thing. How much are you paying to run and operate? I don't care what your kilowatt hour cost is, right? It's, like, it's, your total it's the total cost? amount of, yeah. it's your It's your total cost, because that's what's coming out of your pocket. So it's figure out that rate and then when is your equilibrium there so you know get it optimized uh so to go back to your question start small um take a look at your current uh, rates understand what you're going to be paying for power because that's usually a shocker for people when they look at what the output is and then they get their bill and they're like wait a minute here i mind like 200 dollars in crypto and i have like a 180 dollars power bill and you have to deduct the fact that your house and everything else is using power. So it wasn't that the miner costed you 180 and you usually pay 90. Take off that 90, now you've paid 90 in power um, and you've made 200 in crypto and that's considered a profit, right? So understand and set yourself up to succeed um, by understanding the numbers. And then you've set your expectations accordingly. And then from that, uh, partner up. Like uh, if you're wanting to scale your operation, there's a ton of people out there that want to get into this and look at maybe hedging some of that risk and hedge some of that with you've learned the experience. Um, don't go in it alone. Like sometimes, you know, mixing, you know, friends and family with business kind of can be sketch, right? So understand who you're getting into business with. But like there's a lot of enthusiastic people in this space. Go to meetups. We're trying to do that with our crypto world. So we have a retail store where we have like, Bitcoin uh, and coffee in the mornings on Tuesdays and Bitcoin and beer on Thursday nights. And it's just, you know, collaborative mining, very centric uh, event where people are just talking about hash rates and like how, how they can optimize things. And then you might have an option where you can co-locate with somebody and that they have a better power deal. So ask around, just don't accept your current home rate. There are options out there uh, everywhere where people are already doing it. Maybe you can co-locate. Okay. So. Uh Maybe some tips on cleaning the GPUs. How do you take care of the, your GPUs? I mean, taking care of 2,500 GPUs or 27, you said. Yeah, that that's, must an be... that's an event. <laughs> so it, it's all around schedule. So like we just did a video yesterday where people are, you know, really freaking out about prices and things pulling back and they're like, oh, my profitabilities are down. 
Like I, I say, look at your operations. If it gets to the point where you're really close to equilibrium, never been a better time to shut down and clean your machines, right? So uh, it keeps you keeps you engaged and keeps you motivated. It gets your mind off of prices and like, okay, it's time to clean. Um, we were doing a, a biannual cleaning every year. So we'd go through pull GPUs. Usually it's in the peak of the summer for us uh, up there to where, you know, if we're going to have a 90 degree day plus, like we'll shut down the farm. We have pretty good airflow through it. So we'd keep those on and we'd go out and dust all the machines off, all that kind of stuff and use that peak time where the cards are going to be running a lot hotter. Um, and also we had interruptible power at the main farm, right? So which meant that on certain times on peak days, like if it was like, you know, hundred degree, you know, Fahrenheit days, which is very warm, um, the power company could option us to ask for us to shut down, right? So, cause they're wanting the uh, power for, you know, they're going to have all these air conditionings on everywhere. So yeah. like any kind of interruptible, they were usually pretty cool about letting us know like, Hey, we're at peak. Um, and we're going to, if we didn't shut down, they would just adjust our rate. So they had that clause, right? So we were like, yeah, good time to shut down and clean. So optimize your cleaning around, known known downtimes or known unknown downtimes just knowing that oh, i'm going to be in peak this is the time to do it and if you build that on a schedule just look at a long calendar like we actually have these like printout calendars and we just kind of mark potential days so we can backwards plan to know that we got to be there like i'm not near the farm I'm about 550 uh, miles about you know 700 plus kilometers from the um farm so like i'm flying up there typically so I try to optimize around that time. And it's never, there's never a perfect time unless it's down, like unless the power goes yeah. off or something. Uh, but yeah, optimize it um, and clean it. And we, again, we were doing biannually because we were air cooled in a larger warehouse. If you're in a home miner, just take a visual inspection. Um, and then every, like, you could go probably four years without having to replace like paste and stuff, but at least for the Sapphire mining additions, whatever, uh, solution they used for the the thermal transfer essentially dried up in about two and a half years so really uh, yeah i i had i had some gaming sapphires and they were like beasts running for four years like yeah they were like new oh yeah yeah some of them like if they use the right kind of thermal uh pace they were they were still fine for our our mining edition ones they were like it ended up turning into dust like you were just scraping it off so and the video we just did yesterday was uh on you know the cleaning process because you know profits are down i'm like hey just take your mind off of it clean your machines and then yeah. if it's too low and you have like crazy because i mean some people have 24 cent per kilowatt 33 cent like one guy reached out it's like hey i have 33 per kilowatt i'm no longer profitable and i'm like bro like 33 cent like <laughs> you gotta find another way like yeah. that's expensive so uh like and you know that you know that's where I look at like cloud like I don't want to say cloud hosting, but there's a lot of there's a new evolution of what was essentially like the old Genesis mining concept of like cloud mining, where you have co-location, where you own the asset, and you're just looking at a a, a book rate. I've told people, you know, like if if you have thirty three cent to twenty four cent kilowatt, you may be able to divest that asset still be a miner and buy into another asset. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of GPU solutions with that actually there's only like one or two that i know of um yeah then there must be a reason because gpu rigs can be like trouble all the way with asics you just set it up and forget correct. it. correct yeah you need to have a standard form so that's what we're switching our farm to we're switching to a standard 
uh, like we had mostly the Sapphire Mining Editions, but again, we were talking about AMD earlier, like sometimes it can be finicky. We're, we're been benchmarking the A4000 amperes and the 5000 amperes, mm-hmm. um, and we're splitting across both of them because it's just a supply thing to try to get that many GPUs. We had to split it across the two. Uh, we do have a sample of the 2000 coming, um, but having a, a workstation card that's kind of purpose-built for tasks, and if we can find some good stability, there may be a future state to where, as we're building out this other larger farm, we're doing a bigger Bitcoin farm, we have goals to try to hit 10 megawatt within the next two years. So uh, we're starting with two megawatt, two containers filled out with S19s, but the location and the pricing for the power that we're getting we're looking at having a couple containers that we would be able to do a GPU mining rig potential solution for co-location. So, but it would come with requirements of like the same GPUs and like the configuration management is, needs to be more consistent. So you can't have like your mix of stuff because you're just, it's a lot more complex of a build, you know, to maintain something like that. But, um, you know, maybe future state for us, we'll be able to offer that, that colo for people. Another common question I get a lot from, from uh, beginners who are starting out with GPU mining is how does the, the mining affect the longevity of the, the GPUs? Does it, um, how does it impact I have, the lifespan? Uh, you know, if we got asked that question in 2016, I would have said, I don't know, because like, some of these other GPUs didn't really last long. Um, but as we've learned, taking care of them is huge. So making sure thermal pads, making sure thermal paste, watching temperatures, making sure you're not blowing the fans out at full speed. Um, we try to optimize the farm for the fan speed was never more than 30%. So we did have some, when we start to see spiking up to 60, 70%, we would then look at that GPU, that GPU would be pulled. So you had like a normal day-to-day maintenance. BBT Todd was up there every day. So he would go to the farm every day and he could do onesie, twosie, uh, switch outs or fixes. Uh, with stuff, but trying to optimize where you're not blowing the fan out, as long as you're staying cool and stuff, longevity has been really, really good. So like we're going through the RX 478 gigs as an example right now, repasting, doing all that stuff. These things are still rock solid. They run perfectly fine. The, the retail GPUs that we had, the Red Devil uh, 580, eight gig cards, some of them, the golden samples, some of them, the regular ones still working perfectly fine. We've actually bench test those with, you know, into games and, uh, you know, I, I like run like a 3d mark as an example test. Cause I look at that as a good load test on it. And you just do a loop of that for, you know, set it for a two hour loop and it'll just keep running it. No artifacts still running 2016 GPU, you know, 2017 GPU still today running perfectly fine. So I think what it comes down to is you start getting micro fractures and issues like in memory and that if you're, if you're misconfigured, you have a potential. So, um, one of the things like I, we, uh, you know, suggest people to go to like hard forums and some of the Anadec forums, like if they're trying to buy onesie, twosie GPUs, uh, what I would ask people to do if I was ever buying a GPU there is just have them run that test, run a, uh, you know, shoot me a video of a full end to end of it running 3d mark. Like it's not hard. Somebody could download it for free yeah. if it's been mining its whole life and just see, make sure it upholds it's, it's, uh, it can handle something like that. That's going to give you a proper load test on the core and the memory. Uh, but I think longevity, as long as they were taken care of and they weren't, you know, overvolting uh, too heavily, um, which most people don't overvolt, they undervolt. Yeah. Uh, you're, I think they're in pretty good shape. Yeah, I think the the mining GPUs might be even 
in better condition than gaming GPUs in sort of way since with mining you just have the same load the same temperature the fans are normally at the same speed uh, mm. where at gaming the temperature go up and down and uh, that might be an issue yeah. Uh, yeah what what about LHR cards do you have any of those do you yeah we have a few that we did some testing we didn't never bought a, a lot of them um, the uh, I have a 3080 Ti a 3080 version of that and I think a 3070 LHR just to do some testing um, and you know for content on the channel make sure people understood on how light hash rate works and you know some of the advancements and some of the mining tools that you know uh, try to circumvent some of that uh, driver base, you know, uh, functionality. Um, you know, I, you know, I think it all comes back down to the, the companies trying to find, uh, trying to hit their core consumer and try to make a change to meet the requirement. And it's, it's, it's just them trying to make an effort. Right. So I don't blame like Nvidia doing it. Yeah. Uh, like I get it. Their core customer is complaining hard on them. Like, dude, like all these, yeah. but it all comes back down to incentive. And that's a hard one to take on. I think, you know, especially in bull markets, it's like, it, it it's going to happen. It's a, people are going to buy GPUs. They're going to be in a line for them. Um, people would be buying pants if pants made money, you know, we would run out of pants probably. Yes. So. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incentive thing. So I, like I've, I, we've tried to engage with all of them for years and it's like, I'm not trying to even like be a consultant or anything, but I'm like, dude, just like, let's get on a conference call and like, bring some, some ideas from a supply chain standpoint of maybe some other alternatives or options. Um, I was really hoping that we would see by now, like mining edition cards, like at retail, like, you know, and I know they would get bought up, but like, I still don't know why that's not a thing. Like people, the it's a very simple math problem. Like I, I went and I talked this year at CES, I had talked to a couple of board partners, like a gig, a gigabyte and MSI. I was like, guys, Miners are buying all the GPUs are, you know, they're buying a lot of the GPUs at the store. If you had a mining specific GPU at the store, do you think they're going to get bought? You know, like <laughs> this isn't a quite like if you're doing yeah. forecasting and planning and like, well, we just don't want to be stuck with them. I'm like, they're going to buy those versions, bro. Like they're going to get bought up just like any of the other GPUs. And if you can create like a whole separate fabrication cycle, because like, like GPU fabrication works a lot like the beer making that I was talking about you you create a batch right and that batch has so much wafers and stuff that are out of it and then that batch is ran and then you look at your statistics of buyout and all that and you look do we need to run are we going to run out of beer yeah we're, we're forecasting what we are going to so the fabrication centers they're they're kind of doing a round robin of cycle because there's so much demand right now on on the actual semiconductor industry anyways but like there could be some cycles put in there for mining additions. And at least I would have liked to see the mining edition hit in retail than an LHR. That's what it comes down to. It's like they could have done different, two different things instead of altering software and then changing things on the GPU and saying we're light, light hash rate. They should have just went straight retail with mining edition GPUs and then push people. Now I know people would still go after some of the other GPUs, but if you could start to offset some of that demand with a more efficient, um, like the, the Sapphire 470s as an example, the 480s that we have are the best version of the player's card, bar none, like a lot better than any of the retail editions. I mean, those, the 580 
eight gig versions that we have from Sapphire, 33.15 mega hash at 78 watts. It's, and that's the Polaris card from 2016 or 2017. Like that is better than any other 580 out there. It's a lower wattage by, by output and it's a higher output. So, and it has a heat, that with a 30% fan speed sitting in a box by itself is 46C. If I do that to like a f- normal 580, eight gig card, I'm at 70C at 32 mega hash, right? So it's just there, the mining editions were de- designed better for mining, right? Yeah, I, I yeah. think that the regular GPUs would be bought up anyway, because as long as you, as people would make money on it, they would, they would buy it. So as we discussed earlier, as mm-hmm. long as the difficult doesn't match up the price, people will be buying GPUs. Uh, no matter the performance, even if even if yeah, even if early charge GPUs would be limited to twenty percent, if that made money, people would buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, it's yeah. true. So talking about yep. manufacturers, what do you what do you think about Intel's moves into the into the space? I was actually really uh, disappointed that at CES they didn't announce their GPUs, like the Arc, the whole Arc series. Like I know that they exist. Um, I know that they're going to use GDDR6. Like I, I, we know some facts about them, and we know effectively their bus width is going to be pretty decent. So I mean, they should be you know 60 mega hash cards. It's all comes back down to power. Um, I'm interested to see you know uh, pricing. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't do it at CES. That was the time to do it, um, especially if they're looking at releasing sometime this year. Uh, but you know, maybe they'll do it at one of their own conferences. Um, but it is nice to see from their own semiconductor and the factories and stuff having an additional load of options that are going to be out there. And I think that that's good for the space. We'll see, you know, what kind of volume issues they're going to have or if they're going to do a launch and, you know, instantly be sold out like everybody else. Um, I, I'm cautiously optimistic on it, but it is nice to see a third player in it. Right. Um, Maybe that's why they're purposely so keeping it quiet that. for now, <laughs> playing it down a bit. Yeah, uh, and I'm very interested to see what their ASIC. I mean, it's going to be years from before, at least 18 months, I would imagine, before we see their ASIC. Um, I mean, they got the chip design fabricated. They're going to go through probably, I would assume, six months of testing now since talking about it. Are they going to put it on an array? How much power is it going to use? If you do the math on that, if you keep it in the same form factor, um, you know, their output, because it's a lower, right? But it's lower wattage too. I think it's what, 170, 180 per chip, uh, giga hash per chip at 2.5 watts versus 7 watts. So if you look at it, it might, if they keep, form factor is going to be a big thing. People are like, oh, that's going to be, you know, this, if they try to get it up to uh, 3,100, uh, you know, watts to keep it in line with like the current power infrastructure of most build outs, you know, you're, you're doing the, the M30S, you know, plus or the S19, and you're looking at anywhere from 2,800 watts to 3,500 watts or 3,600 watts. Like Intel's going to build that same thing. I look also at like form factor because it's got to fit in containers, it's got to fit on shelves. Um, uh, if it ends up being, I think the spec out that I saw was a, a 76 uh, tera hash at like 1800, 1900 watts. So like if that ends up being a thing, it's highly efficient. But again, it all comes back down to sizing. If it's only 70 tera hash and now you have a container, 
and you build it the same size as like an S19, then you're only going to get like, uh, you know, that container is, uh, you could get a lot more output per your, your uh, power demand that you're going to have. Because you're not going to be able to fill out the 1.3 megawatt that that container was built to. And yeah. now you're only going to be 700,000 watts and now you're under and you don't have the space to put more. So it's going to be interesting how they're going to do that. Because it's cool going smaller chip, um, our, our same size chip, but like lower power wattage. But like now, like how many boards can I get on? How many? That's yeah. going to be the question yeah. I have. Yeah. Speaking about ASICs, uh, we have a question here about do you think that ASICs will be uh, still like thing for casual miners, for homeowners? I mean, there are mm-hmm. ASICs with uh, five kilowatts power draw. Uh, yeah. I mean, y- y- you can't connect that at your home or, I mean, yeah, that would be a hard, yeah, you, hard you, thing you to do. Using a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so we're, yeah. It, yeah, go on. Well, you could get one. So, I mean, it's like right now, like home miners, and we're seeing this right now proliferate, like just on Twitter and stuff. Uh, when China shut down, it changed everything, right? So now you have a lot more participation around the world, huge amounts of infrastructure being built in the U.S., huge amounts of interest being generated on the ASIC side. Um, but again, it comes back down to sound, power, and heat. Um, with, I would say, from the home, it, it pivots to be more around the sound being the most important thing. Um, uh, and then maybe part of the heat. Power-wise, my, my most, at least homes in the U.S. are 200 amp. Um, they're usually don't require near that um you know most use about 80 amp uh, or less uh and it depends if like you're running your oven and your your dryer at the same time type of thing but uh uh you know a house could handle one we're gonna test this unit that we found at ces from this company called fog hashing i think they're new but they had a unit running at, at ces and it's like it looks like a little as a small dry cooler connected to a what looks like a little fridge box um, and it's all immersion. So they had it running in there um, and they could run that up to 170 terahash at like 4,600 uh, watts. Um, they had it in there and they were talking about the custom firmware that they put on your S19. They had also set up for, uh, you know, a single unit. It was 46 decibels. So that was everything running, which is very low, right? So. Yeah. If you can get solutions like that, and the, the unit cost on it's actually pretty decent. It's fifteen hundred bucks. So I was like, okay. you know, you put a ten thousand dollar miner and a fifteen hundred dollar setup, and you got about three hundred dollars in dielectric fluid, um, and then it's forty six decibels, and you can put that somewhere in your house. And the output and the heat side is about nine hundred to twelve hundred BTU. So like you could have a small heater uh, in the summer. You might want to not have it in the house, but. If, I think as the innovation starts to come around to where you can have solutions like that put together for homes, you would you could see one person putting one of them in their house type of thing. Um, but yeah, building out like farms, it gets far easier. You could put seven to ten GPU rigs in your house, um, and you know do a grow tent or something to be able to extract the heat and pull pull it out, or you could do one to two A6 max, right? So. Uh, I think the volume side is still on the yep. side. Mm, too bad that will defy the the, inter- uh, the first. Uh, I mean, the Bitcoin's white paper when Satoshi mentioned one vote, uh, one CPU, one vote. <laughs> yeah. So I I wish that mining won't become like uh, like email has become Google Mail, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So does, it's just yeah, it's, it's yeah. not one company controlling everything because that's uh, defying the 
solo well, I purpose. Think, I think we get to a situation right now where there's a lot of exposure on those solo miners. Um, and they're, they just keep that. There was another block found like, uh, uh, like yesterday off of 86. Yeah. So it's like, uh, the phenomenon. So people are like, like, why is this happening now? I mean, I, I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten just on this. Like, should I start solo mining all this? Uh, but why are all, why are now are all these like USB ones finding? And I think the biggest distinct differences is because of the proliferation out of China and the separation of now more participation, you've had a lot of people try to get units and there yeah. are onesie twosie units. I mean, just to give you an idea, at crypto world, we've, we've brought in about 120 S19s over the last two months. Uh, we've sold those to over 70 customers. So that gives you an idea of the separation from 120 to 70 different individuals that have came in the store and just like bought one. And, you know, so I think things like that to where people are buying one and just participating is huge. I think the fact that people are solo mining with them, taking the risk of never getting a payout, yeah. right? Um, and winning. And mind you, this is like the lottery. So I would not yeah, I, I going to say it's now, more like, like uh, I don't gambling. recommend <laughs> I don't yeah, recommend it. I actually um, did some calculations uh, a couple of months ago, and the chances of winning a block with one uh, S19 Essex are better than winning a lot lottery. Like a couple of times, I would say five yeah. times better, but the reward is also smaller. So yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's not to like 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 I saw somebody say on Twitter like, oh, you it's like getting you could get struck by lightning twice. I'm like, no, those are way further odds. Like, like you have a much better chance and. Uh, Interestingly, Ethereum's even better um, when you look at like uh, you know having a giga hash on it compared to like the terahash. Yeah. It's, it's actually orders of magnitude better a chance of winning. And there was somebody that won that uh, that five hundred thousand dollar block um, a solo miner right with uh, a couple giga hash, um, and he was only doing it for twenty days. Like, can you imagine that? <laughs> you have two giga hash on this and you win uh, not just an Ethereum block, but you win like a sixty or seventy plus ETH block because it was. Uh, with yeah. MEB and everything on it, like it's insane. But like, I don't recommend it. I, mean, like, I think it's one of those things with, and people are like, do you do it? Like I did a couple examples of it with a small amount when like Ravencoin was about to do its halving in December. I put uh, like 500 mega hash on it and we won two blocks, which was insane. Like it was way more than we should have won. Uh, I think the, the, the luck percentage on the first one was like 34%. The another one was 1%. So, I mean, it was just like pure luck. And then I stopped doing it. It's, it halved. Um, but, you know, we still, we're still on, uh, Raven with part of the, fund, I, I remember, uh, first time placing quarters on nice hash, uh, hash power marketplace. Mm -hmm. I was starting to mine Ravencoin and yep. I used like, I think it was, it was a frosty pool or something like that. And I managed to, I mean, there was like a couple of miners there. Maybe they had like 1% of network share. And then yeah. I bought some hash power and, uh, somehow we won the, the block and I got the full, I mean, basically the whole reward, like. Oh, nice. 4,900. Uh, yeah, 4,999. Yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's... uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting time. I mean, I, they're, and that's the thing about new networks and stuff too. I mean, this is what's great about this space is like, there's the big networks and there's the math behind it and there's what to mine and all these other things. And then you got some newer networks. I know Ton and a couple of the other ones that have came out yeah. and people are interested in them and Reptorium when the uh, Alpha, Alpha, have you heard about this Alpha? I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but something Alpha, a new coin where, uh, in, like it's on uh, 5,000 
on, on rank 5,000 and mm -hmm. it has like quite good profitability, more than Ethereum right now. Interesting. Yeah, no, I have, I, you know, I always liked the, you know, it was the trolling on Bitcoin talk and seeing, hey, wh who's coming out with something new or something next? Yeah. And, you know, this is the thing that people are like, what, what's going to take over Ethereum? It's like, well, I think there's some statistical things we can look at, like networks. And I've done a few models to show like what was price discovery have to get to to be able to take on the Ethereum network, assuming a portion of its ASIC. Um, but we never know what moves forward with with proof of work if uh, you know somebody takes a different solution and now has a little uh, you know price discovery with it and then before you know it you have the next I don't want to call it Ethereum from a profitability standpoint but the part the one thing I've learned over all the years of mining since essentially the almost the beginning of is that there's no limit to people's you know ability to build things and try to move the needle on a space. And when you have a massive community that is super engaged in it, also highly invested in it, yeah. um, it it's kind of like if you build it, they will come type of thing. But like people will re redeploy that that hash rate. And there are times that it pulls back and the network naturally reacts, right? I mean, we've seen Ravencoin did its halving, price discovery didn't happen yet. And it pulled actually back with the rest of the market. And hash rate went from 10 tera hash to three tera hash. It's a natural, a natural occurrence. Like the equilibrium will occur, right? And you know, so the networks are very resilient in that way. But you know, you never know what uh, what opportunity there is. And you know, I th I just think that there's a lot of uh, folks engaged in this space and the, the services you guys provide to give people an opportunity to kind of enter the space um, very easily through a tool. Uh, and that's a different model. It's a broker model, right? Where people will some nice hash sometimes has better rates because there's there's more people maybe forecasting. You'll see some front running on a network sometimes. Yep. We've seen that with Zcash back in the day, where there was like a spike, a whole bunch of Zcash purchase, you know, before they had switched over to ASICs. And it's like, why is the hash rate running? And it kind of front ran price. So so there's a lot of game theory stuff going on. Um, there too. So you can kind of start to see if there's a spike in hash rate, like is price going to move? Um, I think you'll see that with, uh, you know, Raven as an example, if it gets listed on Coinbase, there's always going to be a front run. Somebody knows information there, buy some hash rate. Yeah. And then you're like, why is it, why is Raven setting it? It was three terahash. Now it's back up to 10 and the price hasn't moved. It was like, well, give it a few days. Right. So I think you get some of those spikes. You've seen it with Bitcoin Gold, a couple of the other ones that you can mine with like SHA-256 at the time, and they've switched to, you know, um, you know, to where you could use like your NVIDIA cards and stuff with it. But I mean, there's there's different uh, things. So it's just being aware. That's the other messaging I would always tell people is if you're into mining, I know it can be kind of fair weather. Sometimes you have a lot of fair weather folks, but pay attention to the networks, you know, and understand, you know, the different spikes and understand where things are going with it. And then to give you an idea of probably what's coming. So you're talking about talking about nice hash. Right. Curious question: Have you mined with nice hash yep. uh, before? Absolutely. So uh, we've done a couple of videos um, on just from an engagement standpoint to make sure people knew how to get in. And I've done some that really broke down the the way the market works from a you mining directly as a solo miner versus you mining to a pool and under, you know, to lay out like pool dynamics and how like share works and orphans and, you know, orphan work. And then went into like the, the broker model to where, you know, you point your hash rate, uh, 
to a service and that service then lists you on a, a, a board that then somebody can buy your hash rate from and now you're brokered into getting receiving Bitcoin because essentially it's somebody paying for your hash rate and you guys providing that as a service. You know, so it's kind of like a managed service aspect, uh, you know, concept of that. And then went into like cloud mining, cloud hosting, co-hosting, all that kind of stuff. So there's been a few like education videos just to under, let folks to understand kind of where your guys' tech sits in the stack from a broker standpoint. And then, uh, you know, then having a different view of just like what's the uh, uh, opportunity given, you know, mining. There, I mean, there's a whole bunch of analysis with regards to like, the opportunity of mining for Bitcoin or, you know, mining the coin directly. Right. And, you know, I think uh, there were some points in there that if you just had it on nice hash for like the bear market, you would have done like way better. Right. Like, yeah. so when Bitcoin first started coming up now, Ethereum, when it shot up to 4,800, it kind of offset it some, like if you were just mining Ethereum. Um, but the, um, the difference is uh, pretty significant for like a new person getting in because the the barrier to entry is a lot lower, right? Yeah. So you have, uh, uh, you know, if they're just getting in, they have a Windows computer, that, that first step I was telling people, like if you've never done anything, to, under, to not have to all that config set up in the beginning, it is, it's a much easier play. Um, yeah, I think that uh, NiceHash will will show its let's say power so to speak when there will there will be many um coins like quite similarly profitable uh because for like average user uh, then you will have to manually switch or have a some kind of software to switch between the coins and additionally you will have to like uh, exchange mm -hmm. those, co those coins take care of the pools configuration uh, where at NiceHash you just simply get paid in Bitcoin and it does everything automatically. And basically yep. you can set the percentage difference you want to, at, at the, at what percentage you want to change the algorithm. So, um, mm. so I, and at NiceHash there's actually double profit switching. One is inside each algorithm where buyers are the ones uh, placing orders on different coins with the same algorithm. And then you have different algorithms. So mm -hmm. there's actually double profit switching, so to speak. Yeah, and I like the ability that it, it, you have the the testing too, from a configuration standpoint, where you can go through and benchmark and then see. And then there's, there's like, I, I remember doing a video where I was showing, you know, like just doing it vanilla and then doing it where you came in there and you, you alter some of your settings to reduce some power and you can see that the output hadn't changed in the test. Um, so you using it as a benchmark too, um, is interesting, you know, for folks to see the difference on stuff. It, it's funny cause, a lot the, and I actually do for, you know, I haven't done it in a while. Most of the stuff we've just done in Linux and stuff and you guys, it supports both, right? You, you can do it from Hive yep. OS or simple mining OS. It's just pointing it to the, uh, you know, the nice hash pool, but the, um, with your particular wallet address, but like just that simple setup and config, it's been, we're about due for a new video on that, but um, just to let, you know, folks understand the options, right? And again, it comes back down to education options and getting into this space. And I think that's, it's always been the key to, to get more people involved um, in mining and potentially a, a, a counterparty to buy, you know? 
what do you prefer efficiency or are you going for hash power uh so i think that's mostly dependent on your uh, electricity price probably yeah yeah sometimes you're optimizing for what's the most hash rate that i can get um i don't want to say agnostic to your power i mean you always want to be conscious of your power usage not just for your output or your power or the you know the demand on your power but also creates heat right so the more the more juice i'm flowing to that card i'm, I'm creating more heat so there's kind of a counter effect on the thermal side on it, but um, there could be argument on longevity and then your fan performance and that, you know, like if you're gonna have to spike your fan curves all the way up. I, I see a lot of my other fellow creators out there that, you know, have a lot of viewers and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I see their configs and then I see like 100% fan speeds. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you're gonna kill the fan in nine months. Um, yeah, you really wanna optimize where you're not blasting your, your GPUs at 100% fan speed. If you do that 24 seven, 365, I don't care what kind of tech is in it. They're not gonna last much. It's gonna, that, yeah. it's gonna burn them up. They're gonna, they're gonna start losing fans after about a year. I think the best fans I've seen are uh, non-ball bearing uh, magnetic fans and they can last sometimes up to two years, like full tilt, yeah. but uh, yeah, they will, they will fell. So talking about fans, so what, what would you say for a home miners? Yeah. Is it better to go for water cooled or air cooled? Uh, I, th I think from a cost standpoint in the beginning, you definitely go uh, air cooled. Um, when you start talking uh, the, uh, the larger operations, or if it's a medium operation at your home and you need to really look at heat uh, issues and you're really going in it long-term, then immersion might be worth it to you, especially if you're in a, a more uh, warmer climate. Um, that's gonna be a, a key factor. So, uh, you know, I know folks down in Texas have looking, especially West Texas, where you're just dry and it's hot all the time in the summer. You know, essentially have three months of cool period and then the rest of it's, you know, 80 plus um, so Fahrenheit and uh, looking at immersion will save you not just on the heat too. It's also just the maintenance of the GPUs. It changes the entire concept of having to clean off dust and fans and that kind of thing. Um, and you also re you're offset on the power side because like you're not using fans anymore in the immersion. However, you do have the dry cooler and that power. So uh, it's kind of, it's actually a little, you'll use a little more power, but it, it's not, not too bad. It, it all comes down to the, the size of the tank and the amount of cards you have in it and where the power starts to offset, you know, from, from that standpoint. But. Okay. So let's talk about the future. What do you think that the future of mining will bring um, GPU mining versus ASIC, ASIC miner, for example? Um, so the, uh, I, I think the future really comes back down to how much price discovery and growth we have in the space. Um, I think it's very positive and I think what it does is it starts to front run what gets built, right? So if we have a massive price increase across the board, um, to where we even have like a secondary coin that's proof of work mineable, like if it's flux and pa parallel assets, I mean, we haven't even got into the concept of other alternative uh, proofs of work, like are not just proof of work, but other options for miners such as render network and all these other things. If these get any kind of momentum and you have a huge proliferation there, you're gonna have a, a pretty large demand cycle on stuff. Um, I think the, the future is uh, hopefully where we'll have more options. Um, 
in you know the participation side on the retail i think retail market's massive and huge and uh, required growth um hopefully supply chains get figured out and we have uh you know more folks on that but i also think we're gonna have a lot of a lot of esg concern uh just because people are still not going to give up on the idea that we're using a lot of power um so efficiency is going to be key um i mean it's always good to use less of anything like like but you can't let it drive your option to not use i mean people are not freaking out about using hair dryers and stuff right so um, you still gotta dry your clothes and those use a lot of power too um so like uh, good uh, good engagement and discussions and um understand that if we are going to start to change the entire way fintech and the financial network works or we all are using these systems having an understanding that some of them do use power um, but the uh you know Intel's going to be interesting. I think uh, that's another big one to look for this year. Um, and then, yeah, we'll see if ETH 2.0 actually happens this year. Or we're having this discussion this time next year and seeing if it's still going to happen in 23, which how, is going to you know, grossly affect the CPU miners. Yep. How do you think that's going to affect uh, participation? That's something you, you mentioned a few times uh, today. Proof of stake, for example. Yeah, I mean, it kind it, of limits some aspects of participation. What do you think of that? Well, it, uh, I mean, so if there's not a price discovery on any of the other tokens to get the option to, to shift, right? I, I've said many times, I think the the highest probability of growth uh, comes to Ethereum Classic because the least amount of config change for the miners, right? So like essentially they're flipping a few switches and then everything's the same. Like nobody has to change their power profile, any of that, it just switches over. Um, so I think that kind of could front run ETH Classic. And we did see price discovery up to $175 this year, um, even though it was just a quick spike at 25 terahash. So to give everybody an understanding, uh, ETH went down to 86 terahash in March 2020 with 150 terahash or $86, you know, price point with 150 terahash on the network. So five times more hash rate on ETH's network at that time, right? Um, so if that transition happens it looks and feels a lot like ethereum right we can calculate profitability we can calculate things around ethereum classic a lot easier because it's a one-to-one -one, right so um what's price need to be to uphold you know 900 terahash right uh at least a couple thousand dollar eth classic price what's it what if it drops back down to where it's 150 terahash well right now current pricing uh handles about 70 terahash so we can start to figure out kind of the math on it um one-to-one -one. uh ravencoin would have to be which would be probably the next uh second uh largest uh really would need to get in that now since it's halved it would really need to get into that like almost dollar range to be able to hold so 10x uh, or more than 10x uh about a 20x of where it's at right now because it needs to go 10x to get uh, back up because they're about five and a half to six cents right and you to get the 10 cents and then another 100x on top of that um to get our 10x to get up to a dollar um so it needs to have some serious price discovery to be able to handle um you know uh, hundreds of terahash that would move over which would then turn into half that for ravencoin right so um yeah so i think it's a, it's a mix of all of them uh need to have uh, some pretty strong price discovery to be able to handle the current network um but I think what we'll have is exactly what we've seen with Ravencoin. I think uh, if, if if and when Ethereum moves over, you're going to see a massive receding 
um, of hash rate, people will power down and try to look at the footprint and saying, okay, what happens now? And then yeah. see if any of these coins get a price in discovery. So it's not going to be, uh, you know, like something unbelievable and magical. It's just literally people are going to power off and figure out, okay, what's next. Um, uh, and maybe a few spikes to these other networks, right? I've done some models of like the day that switches, everybody moves over to Ethereum Classic and Ethereum Classic magically goes to 300 terahash and then everybody's like, wait, this yield sucks, you know, and then they'll shut down. <laughs> so we'll, I think we'll see some of that and, and maybe that all that hash rate moving over to give it a lot, a lot of signal to noise. You know, there's obvious, the, the one thing I don't think anybody's calculating is the fact that when this happens, and I'm not saying if it happens, I think Ethereum will figure it out and they'll take the risk because they're, they're just nuts and they're, they're going to want to separate this network. And there's going to be, you think Solana shutting down all the time is going to be hilarious. Wait until they lose <laughs> acetation between two networks, which is what's going to happen, which they already have in the test net, right? You're literally, ETH1 continues to go on. It's holding all the smart contracts and everything. This is only moving consensus over to, to Beacon, right? So you're going to have both networks running and, cons and inheriting the consensus from the other network. Right there, it shows you an interleave, and you're always going to have issues with trying to find acetation. They're already seeing that on the dev network. So I have absolute confidence there'll be issues if they push forward, and then we'll see that drama play out. Um, if that ends up going and then everybody switches over, there's going to be huge signal to noise on who's next, right? So Ethereum Classic, Ravencoin, Flux, Irgo, all of them are going to get press. Right, because everybody's going to be trying to shake out who inherits all this potential hash rate. Um, so that noise is probably going to push price, I would assume, a little bit, um, just because the just the statistical value of getting that much exposure uh, from like CNBC and everybody, everybody. There's going to be punch list. I mean, I've already had uh, folks reach out from some of these places, CoinDesk and uh, CNBC, asking who's now like what we've seen a model somebody linked us to a video to you you seem to be aware of this like what networks you know we, where do we start and it was really just kind of their research wing trying to get an understanding of it right so that already gives me enough telemetry to show that they're going to have articles about it and we're going to see a lot of like what what's going to get it so i think that mm -hmm. signal helps push some of these coins up a little but really it comes back down to usability i mean ethereum's proved it um like if you have enough demand of people leveraging the network for things happens to be nfts everybody thought it was going to be DeFi. um nfts driving a lot of the ethereum demand right now i mean just look at the where the transactions are going right so uh, nft uh, can ethereum classic inherit some of that do people care you know i think it comes back down to bitcoin's the number one and will always be the number one most sought after scarcity thing. Ethereum, even with its troubles and its amount of, uh, uh, you know, uh, amount of people that are on it and trying to use it, NFT standpoint, it's still kind of the de facto gold standard of the NFT, even with all the fees. Solana had an opportunity, but it keeps failing and shutting down the network for multiple <laughs> days. And I think that's gonna hurt it a lot Polkadot's just in the background. I mean, nobody talks about Polkadot. Um, Avalanche is moving a little further, but part of the problem with Avalanche is it's super, super centralized, um, very highly centralized. And a lot of their network stuff is federated. So like 
I, I just don't see it. And I literally try to get a, a talk with Card uh, with Cardano's uh, top guy, uh, Charles Hoskins, and I'm Solomon at CES. We sat and talked for I don't know, about 20 minutes in the middle of CES, just BSing back and forth about Cardano. And you know, he was talking about the, the kind of links with like Ergo and like the uh, the proof of the val the proof of work with like proof of useful work stuff that he was talking about. But like, I just don't see it unless, you know, I think flux is a little further along on like parallel asset stuff. Like there is a, a, a coming of potential use of those GPUs. If it's parallel asset mining or if it's uh, a, uh, a tie to like computational fluid dynamic stuff with like render network, uh, doing like um, 3d modeling and computational fluid, the, the, you know, CFL stuff or CFD stuff. Um, there's something that I think is in play for that, but like, you know, it's a future out from that. So, I mean, I, I think bottom line, there's going to be a place to go, but I think it's going to have a, a pretty massive dip the moment that happens. And then all of us going to be stepping back and watching all the issues that Ethereum is going to run into for trying to force this thing. Um, you know, yeah, uh, that imagine uh, Bitcoin going to proof of stake. <laughs> yeah, it, it won't happen. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I, I, I saw a meme the other day that I think sums it up the best. It's like having the exercise bike and doing the work or having a whole bunch of stuff sitting on the exercise bike, right? It's proof of stake. I own the thing, but yeah. it's not doing anything, right? Like you have to put in the work, right? So it's, you know, you're not going to get into shape. You're not, you know, you're not. You're not proving anything if you own that asset, right? It's it's a very uh, disengaged way of holding a network, right? Like just because I bought something doesn't mean anything, right? It's the use of it. It's the it's the thing. So I think that's the fundamental issue with proof of stake is that its incentive structure gets to where you get to a conglomerate kind of setup, right? You get into the Rothschilds, you get into the larger um, companies that will take mat if it gets price discovery they'll just buy it all up where in the proof of work side we're already seeing what's happened i mean there's big companies that are riot and wystone and like some of these other foundry big investment companies getting into it but there's only so much power in some area right so you have a natural distribution and not everybody has deals or can build in particular areas so you could have the best crew in the world to build you a farm and I, I would say Foundry and, and, and Riot are doing some of the biggest builds in the world right now, 400 megawatt. It's taken them three years, right? So the proof of even build to get to the proof of work is not fast. And it, there's effort to it. And there's a lot of investment to it. So one entity will only grow so big in that concept where you'll have multiple entities all over concurrently doing it because they're all going to get in it because it's all the chase if the price goes let's bitcoin goes parabolic again and we push to two hundred thousand dollars the bitcoin network's still going to do this because they yeah. can't build <laughs> fast enough right so yeah. we're seeing it right now it's still highly profitable so yeah then I, then work then, is the better the best way right now by far then, more no then we're going to see corporations like i think was that for the oil uh, opec is it opec uh yeah similar similar for the for the miners well that's because... that's the risk on the regulatory front that people yeah. are concerned about right the, the risk on the regulatory front isn't uh, i think the biggest existential risk on uh, on the oppression of not understanding it and then trying to regulate that environment which is why all of us in all of our different countries need to make sure we have some sort of i don't even call it lobbying but just to make sure people have that education 
to be like, okay, try to understand what you're talking about here. So you know um, what you're actually regulating. Yeah. And then have enough content out there to like, you know, it's for them to make decisions on, uh, assuming that there's not a huge amount of corruption, all that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, that's another big thing, but that's, there's a whole other existential attack on that vector of like pointing out corruption and that kind of stuff. But like making sure that the regulatory front is done at a, at a, at a country level, because I think it's very important to the people and the constituents of a country. If it goes to like G8 level, and now it's looking at like globalization control type of thing. And it's like, we all got like all the countries get together leaders and they're like, oh, we got to figure this out. Do we want this? And then if they collectively try to attack it, uh, certain areas like the US is still, like I said, it's going to be super hard, no matter what the administration wants to do, just because the states operate in such, I mean, you can smoke marijuana in like half the states in the US, it's still federally illegal, right? So like, like the states will have no problem fighting the federal government on stuff, and it'll just lock it into court and they don't roll in tanks and stuff. In the US. That's not the way it works, right? So it's separated. So it's, they'll, they'll want to push an agenda, but they still have to get the buy in from the people, right? And that's, that's still a, a good structure. And there, there's violence and there's riots and shit shit happens, right? But like, um, it's still, there's a path to it. And I think as long as they don't try to G8 it and, you know, and get the larger, uh, large countries, you know, China's already moved forward with trying to ban a lot of stuff and get control of their, their structures, you know, the Russian, um, not government, the central bank, right. Made a, made a, made a statement and everybody's freaking out about it, but statements and execution, completely different things. So, if the government's not putting out a thing, if Putin's not putting it out, right, uh, officially, I'm not listening to it, right? It's like, whatever. Like, they can say whatever. Like, anybody can say whatever. We, uh, Senator Warren, you know, hates Bitcoin mining, but it doesn't affect, like, the policymaking, right? It's just a statement. So I want to see it from the policymakers. I want to see it from the leaders and their direction. And then it's, then it's something. You know, China leaders said it people rolled in and shut people down right so it's a different like when we start seeing that kind of thing Kazakhstan cut off the you know cut off the internet for a bit and it was like let's let's get a handle on it right and now it's back on right and there a lot of a lot of entities are coming back so you know i think it comes back down to leadership uh and that's what our the focus is and then and it's our responsibility living within the districts and everything else to make sure that we're educating people to what questions do they got? Why are people doing this? Well, it's participation. It's, it's, there's natural freedoms with it. Um, and then we just make sure they're educated on it. Okay. Uh, last question. Where do you see uh, mining in one year and in 10 years? How do you see the future of mining? I think, in, I think we're going to see a continued growth, uh, especially in the, uh, you know, the kind of North American hemisphere right now, there's a huge amount of buildup. Um, the, the 10 year outlook, um, I, I will say that I see it going into a place to where governments are going to make a decision. Is it critical infrastructure or not? I think that's the next big hurdle. If large governments consider it, that this is a portion of the future when it comes to FinTech, and it's a portion of the future when it comes to the ability to communicate like web three then they understand the security of that architecture is held up by a conglomerate of independent people, like just doing their own, uh, you know, like a, a sector 
of, uh, you know, like it's its own sector and there's individual participants, there's companies that are in it, that kind of thing. Um, if they look at it that way, which is the way I think it is, then they're going to deem it, there's going to be a, a, an inflection point of where they're like, this is critical infrastructure. That means a lot of things in, the, in like the United States, critical infrastructure now falls under different, it, it goes from just like public works to like homeland type of thing. So like, then it gets into a lot more security requirements and that kind of stuff. It becomes like a data center a type of concept. If it comes into where it becomes critical infrastructure, um, then I think we see a solidification of mining. And now it's a matter of how renewable can we get? Are there initiatives and incentives to move to renewable versus pushing on people? It's more of like, hey, if you can try to get your energy mix as renewable as possible over this much time, you know, it, it's uh, the path. Like you start getting into structured incentives to start moving to that. And then maybe there's some kind of co-investment co from a miner to help build out infrastructure. You know, um, there's there's a lot of opportunity, I think, there for, uh, you know, miners to, to kind of lead the way on that kind of stuff. So I think that's where it's going to go. I think it's, we're already seeing massive infrastructure. You don't have that kind of investment in these areas without, um, with blinders on. So I think at the end of the day, the, the leadership understands that this is going to be, I don't want to call it too big to fail, but it's, a, it's mm -hmm. there, it does affect a lot of things. If it was just mining, this is the thing. If it was just mining, the focus was mostly on mining. I think they could try to shut it down. The fact that it's in the fabric of people's investments, whole other game, right? Yeah. This just doesn't affect, you know, miners. This affects everybody in the stack and miners are the security of that network. So the FinTech people, if, if, if miners were attacked very heavily from a legislative standpoint, the FinTech folks, the sailors, the yeah. big investment groups, Grayscale would go, whoa, 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 you're messing with my security. Yeah, that, and then that's, that's a good thing for care. Right. Yeah. That's going to be their argument. Like, hey, don't mess with the security, man. You're going to make this unstable. What holds this asset up is the fact that nobody can change that. So you start so, messing with the security and immutability, and that's going to be the counter argument. Right. So, so it, it comes down to the price, of, uh, like price going up. This is very, actually very good. Uh, like uh, people investing money in Bitcoin, it's, it draws the development of blockchain technology. I think that's very crucial part of people yep. like, uh, I think it uh, reminds me on dot-com bubble mm -hmm. where there was a lot of companies trying to, to do something. And uh, yeah, because of the money inflow, uh, uh, companies like Google and Amazon were able to start, mm -hmm. you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I just think there's gonna be uh... And there's opportunity for some of those. I mean, uh, I mean, Ether practically Ethereum 2.0 is going to run on on all the clouds. That's part of the issue too. But uh, you know, I mean, there's going to be, and that's going to be what's interesting too. As much as I, I kind of tongue in cheek, and I'm not making fun of it. It's just uh, tongue in cheek. You you see that infrastructure, Solana, Avalanche. A lot of this stuff is running on the world's clouds, right? Because mm -hmm. again, it all comes back down to incentive and risk. Every everything comes down to like any kind of proposal, any kind of structure is like, what's my risk? What's my assumptions? What can I control? And what can I not control? Right. You do like a, just a whole, and then you can bust out SWOT analysis on all that when you're looking at business structure and all that stuff. So like you look at like these world networks that are not just mining networks or the proof of stake networks, they're going to be sitting on the world clouds. Right. 
And that's, I think that is an existential risk for all kinds of reasons, right? I mean, you look at parlor, you look at things that don't meet the intent. And then if you get politicians, you get people that are against the entire narrative of crypto and they're like, well, we can, we're going to shut it down. And it's like, well, you can't shut it down. It's everywhere. And they're like, we can shut down the clouds from doing it because we can give them an executive order to say that this is a existential threat to something. And then the clouds get a notice and say, you don't want to be in that business anymore. And then they just start killing ports for that stuff. Right. And then now you're, now you're disconnected. You could take down, I mean, we've seen it already with Ethereum once on Infura with all the smart contracts and looking at, uh, you know, Oracle architecture based on the same thing. And then Infura nodes end up having a problem and nobody can get connected to the smart contract. And it's like, well, it's all sitting on Amazon. And then, you know, now they have it in different availability zones, but the first kind of structure was like in one availability zone. So like there is some risk when you centralize, or I would call it more federated because you could be multi-cloud, right? You could be Google, GCP, you could be Azure, you could yeah. be global with that too, right? On the, some of their global data centers. Um, but when you start centralizing some of that infrastructure up to the global clouds, you, you, it's not more than just the redundancy risk. It's the the belly button risk, right? If somebody uh, pushing on the, you know, an administration somewhere, shutting it down um, because they know that most of the infrastructure and that, that's an easy, like there's RFPs, like or, or RFIs, requests for information, right? The governments do, and it's not just the US, all governments do this, right? For proposals. And it's a simple thing. Like, give me the, the network architecture layout of Avalanche, right? And then somebody will go chase that cheddar and take that contract and happily give them the entire infrastructure layout based on the nodes and where they're at, by and large of where everything's at. Try to go do that with Bitcoin. They're not doing it through network. They're trying to do a power analysis, right? right? They're trying to figure out where the hotspots are. And most of that inf information is gonna be protected through privilege because it's a customer file, right? And a customer database, right? So like you're not, and it's just all this distribution, like proof of work, uh, like I, it's such an easy argument. Like I love getting into these, like when I'm at crypto world and stuff, people are like, oh, proof of stake versus proof of work. I'm like, where do you want me to begin? <laughs> right? Like it, it's just the distribution model is completely different. It's not that it's bad. There's like, there's, there's, there's an effort with easier user interfaces, speed to delivery. There's all those benefits of the trilemma, right? That you can start to inherit an option. Um, but I think the best approach in the long run is if you're going to do that kind of thing is doing some kind of side chaining parachains uh, mixed with checkbook blocks on on proof of work right so if the, wor the worst case if you're going to go that rate is having proof of work as being part of that cycle where you're at least getting checkpoints and you have an incentive out there for people to uphold that structure uh in that security through proof of work uh you know like dash did you know they went hybrid you know so like yeah. I think that's the long-term, you know, we were talking again about long-term is people taking a real, it's only going to take one or two of these big ones and then some kind of negative, uh, some kind of negative uh, movement at a global scale towards crypto. Like we have like a really dark time as we call it, like, you know, like where it just seems like everybody's against it for some reason um, from a policy standpoint. And then we see some shutting down of like maybe potential big networks or we have a parlor event with like, you know, uh, where all the global, the global clouds are incentivized to shut it down, then that's going to shake the industry to go, well, guess who's going to still be up Bitcoin. 
right? <laughs> you know, or if Ethereum still hasn't moved over, like, <laughs> well, maybe we don't move to proof of stake now. You know, like, I think the wavering of that can be ha can happen very quickly if something super negative happens on global clouds, like from an initiative standpoint. So I, I think Vitalik, just watching him on uh, up, was it up only TV with a Kobe this last week, um, watching how quick he would change, like he he's changed his opinion on a few things. I think he could be quickly convinced if he felt there was an existential threat to uh, proof of stake uh, things getting shut down. You know, and I think it, it all comes back down to like, well, we really were trying to get the energy initiative, but we also got to be able to stay up, right? So I think that's what it's going to come down to. And then in the next three years, I think we're going to find that out. Uh, we're going to find out where the global community sits on their tolerance with, um, you know, cryptos in general of how to interact against global fintech. But uh, if they sit on their hands, it's just Web3 is going to take it over. And everybody's, all the younger generations just going to start using it. It's going to be integrated. You got Jack building stuff into the apps and stuff. Uh, it's just going to be like, we're not even using traditional finance anymore. It's just going to all happen on Web3. Um, so, so. Yeah. This is some really good insight. To, uh, very interesting to, to talk. Yeah. I would say the, the good moral of the story is keep mining. <laughs> yeah. Keep mining and learn more. It was learn as much as you can. Like, right. Exactly. You know, learn more about this space, be engaged. If you're a developer, um, you know, uh, do the basics, uh, every couple of weeks, Ravencoin, I'm, I'm always pitching Ravencoin. I just, it's a, it's proof of work. And I, I believe in his vision. Um, they have like an open dev call and, and they are trying to get new developers. So it doesn't matter if you have any experience, right? They work you through setting up the IDE. So that's the integrated development environment, how to get your stuff configured for C++, some, some fresher courses. You, you could go in there with no knowledge, right? So like things like that, I think are big. I think every community should have that. Like if the developer community, they invest time to, to write code. To teach and to train people, time. yeah. Yeah, split that time. Like I always tell people, like the best thing you can do. Like people are like, "Why do you have eight people working for you?" Like that's crazy. Like because I can do so much more, and it's there's a math problem to make sure that that we're covering ends on everybody. But like, like if I can copy myself eight times to do certain activities, it's unbelievable the throughput of things that happen. So if a developer that's a good developer, and I used to run a lot of development shop, my background in history all the way back into the AB days was development. So I ran development, huge development shops, um, hundred plus people, eight different agile teams. The best thing I could do was always do like a paired programming in the beginning with a new guy and a, a, a kind of a medium to, you know, senior dev, get them to know the basics, how to check in things properly, how to do all this, spend two weeks with them, three weeks, and then give them small things like replicate your experience for the basics. And if you can do that on the dev side, on like the crypto networks, you're, we're going to get a lot more material. We're going to get a lot more content that's supporting the things that we're mining, right? So uh, developers are key. We've seen the explosion with Ethereum because of the development and a lot of those Ethereum developers moving over to some of those other projects to get mm -hmm. more velocity, right? Because Ethereum and Bitcoin are like big ships and they don't move often. You know, they don't, it takes them a while to steer. Um, so teams going over to rapid application development yeah, if you're, if you're interested and you're watching, you end up watching this stream and you never developed, like look into that. Uh, Ravencore Discord does it. I think even Flux does this too. Um, look into these different networks and see if there's development opportunities, you know, 
and just do it on the night, you know, spend the evenings when you're surfing YouTube, start learning how to develop. And, you know, it changes, it change everything. It'll change your perspective on how to approach problems. And it's highly recommended. I think, I think we could do a whole new episode on that. Elements of blockchain and mining. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to wrap it up. It's been, it's been really great to talk to you. Some fantastic insights from, from all the different uh, angles of mining. Um, really great to hear from you. Hope we'll uh, hear from you again in the future. Let's see where Ethereum yeah, is at in, in a year's time or <laughs> something like that. But uh, yeah. yeah, thanks everyone for, for watching us today. Uh, it's been great to have uh, BBT Kacha here joining us today, talking all about mining. Uh, remember to check out his channel. Go and check out Bitsby Tripping on YouTube. And of course, subscribe to NiceAsh and get the latest episode of Nice Talk, where we're always talking with crypto industry experts and the latest in the crypto industry. Thanks all for today.